Welcome to the aggressive life. You know, being aggressive is all about seeing reality and going forward. Not waiting for something to happen, but actually pushing forward and making something happen. And yet sometimes something happens that we couldn't have anticipated and really messes up our plans. Now, don't do it. Don't, don't, don't shut down the podcast. As soon as I tell you what we're going to talk about, some of you are going to go, oh, I'm so sick of this. You're going to shut it down. Don't do it. Don't do it because I promise you, I utterly promise you, this is going to be a fresh, fresh stuff that's going to help you. We are not talking about COVID-19 today. We are not. We are not talking about coronavirus. We are not. We are not. Unless you can look to see some of the parallels with the Spanish flu, the last true blue, deadly kick your ass epidemic that happened inside of America's borders, actually pandemic. It was utterly, completely brutal. Like, well, interesting, Brian, define brutal. Well, I learned that Donald Trump's grandfather was walking home from having dinner one night and had a cough and he was dead the next morning. That kind of brutal. Really, really tough stuff. I am really excited about my guest today. My guest today is John Barry. He has a very unique distinction in that he actually wrote a book that I read the entire way through. The entire <laughs> the entire way through. I read it years and years ago before before COVID-19. It's called The Great Influenza. I, I've, I've written some books, and I'm, I'm curious if John believes the same stuff here. Those of us who've written books, we generally have word counts that we have to hit, at least the ones I've written. You get halfway through the word count, and you realize, I don't know that I ha- really have anything more to say in this topic, so you just keep, you just keep writing anyway. That's why at least 90% of the books I start, I stop halfway through because I've gotten at least 90% of the content. That was not the way it was with this book, The Great Influenza, that was released in 2005. It's estimated the Spanish flu killed more than 50 million people worldwide, some believing that the number is actually closer to 100 million. The Black Plague was 25 million. It was so bad, it actually lowered the life expectancy in the United States by more than 12 years. And it was especially deadly for healthy adults aged 16 to 35. We're joined today by historian and New York Times bestselling author, John M. Barry. He literally, he literally wrote the book on the Spanish flu, the great influence of his book, spent a year on the New York Times best-selling list, won a, won a slew of awards, including Book of the Year from National Academies of Sciences. He's got a lot to tell us, and there are some things that we might understand about what the future of America looks like if there's any similarities between coronavirus, COVID-19, and influenza, although I'm sure John would admit, as we all know, if you if there's anything that we learn from history, it's that we don't learn anything from history. So I don't expect us to actually learn today, but for those of us who are in the upper 1% who can actually learn from history, you're going to get a mouthful today. Welcome, welcome, John Barry, to The Aggressive Life. Well, thanks for uh, that introduction. I, I spent a little time as a football coach when I first got out of college, and we're always talking about, as you probably know, make something happen. So <laughs> that was a familiar phrase to me. And uh, then I usually go around quoting Hegel, who 
said what you just said. What we learned from history is that we learn nothing from history. So, well, it's great to have you with us. I didn't I didn't know that you were a football coach until I was uh, reading your bio and getting ready for this. So that's kind of odd. So what what takes somebody from being a football coach who has to like seeing heads bust together and there's a, there's just an ethos in the football coach realm especially old school football coaches maybe not so much today but old school football coaches there's a, there's just an ethos that I I wouldn't think that would marry itself well with someone who would write a 555-page book on a disaster that really no one was interested in 2005. What caused you to make that shift? Well, uh, you know, I just always wanted to be do two things in my life. One was um, either medical research or write. Uh, Never wanted to be a doctor, a clinician, treating patients. I was very interested in medical research. But I also just... Just love football. Uh, And the truth is, I sat on the bench in college on a poor team in a weak league. (laughs) (laughs) That that left a bad taste in my mouth. If I had played, I probably would never coach. But sitting on a bench on a bad team in a bad league, that was not the way I wanted to leave the game. And in fact, the first article, the first three articles that I ever published – were all in a uh, magazine for coaches about uh, the first one was about a system to call your blocking, change your blocking pattern on the line of scrimmage. And then about maximizing the tight end. I used to use them like an H back, which you see a lot of now throw screen passes to them, stuff like that. Fascinating. And what made you so fascinated in the influence? Well, actually, tell us about this. I gave a little, I gave some statistics, but but give us give us a thirty thousand foot view of what was the Spanish flu? What was the ep- influenza epidemic, and what made you interested in it? Well, you did pretty much cover it. Uh, you know, number one killed probably at least fifty million, possibly hundred million people, in a world population less than a quarter today. So if you adjust for population, that'd be like 225 to 450 million people today. So it it was just a horrific event. Uh, In addition, it killed, as you also said, mostly young adults, probably two thirds of the dead were between uh, 20 and 50, 18 and 45, however you cut the numbers. Two-thirds of the total deaths in the world probably occurred in about 12 weeks in the fall of 1918, Uh, although the whole pandemic lasted about two years. You know, there were people who dropped dead, including Trump's grandfather, uh, in less than 24 hours after the first symptoms, although in most cases, most people did die of secondary bacterial infections, which, you know, lasted longer. Even today, uh, bacterial pneumonia following influenza has a case mortality rate of 8%, even with all our modern healthcare and antibiotics. In terms of the impact on society, in any given city, it was generally four to six weeks that the virus was circulating before it infected pretty much everybody and, and passed through. So it was an extremely intense experience. And quite horrific. Some of the symptoms, people were turning turning so dark blue from lack of oxygen. And I mean dark blue that, uh, you know, in the book, I quote a doctor saying he had difficulty distinguishing between uh, white soldiers and African-American soldiers. Wow. And, you know, you could bleed not just from your nose, which was actually quite common 
but you could also bleed from your eyes and ears. That's, that's pretty scary. Uh, wow. Terrifying experience. And, and when this happened, what was the, what was the news cycle like? I mean, they obviously didn't have 24-hour news like we have, but the average American, as we look back at the periodicals, how were people processing this? What, what was government's response? How, uh, did, did everything shut down? I mean, what would it look like for them? Well, there was a huge difference, and that was because we were at war. There was a very powerful self-censorship. Newspapers were minimizing it at the government's request. Uh, because they thought telling the truth would be bad for morale and hurt the war effort. So what you heard national public health leaders saying was things like, this is ordinary influenza by another name. Wilson, the president, never made a single public statement about it ever, whatsoever. Never mentioned it. Wow. Public national public health leaders were saying things. You got nothing to worry about if proper precautions are taken. And at the same time, the deaths are piling up by the thousands. You know, uh, in, in Philadelphia, a city I write about at length in the book, you had seven at a peak, over 700 deaths a day in one city. Even there, when, when in Philadelphia, when they finally belatedly closed schools, theaters, saloons, and so forth, one of the newspapers actually said, and this is at a time when priests are literally driving horse-drawn carts down the streets telling people to bring out their dead. At that time, one of the newspapers said these closing orders, quote, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for panic or alarm, unquote. So, I mean, how stupid did they think people were who were reading it? People understood they were being lied to. You know, it's alienating and it drove people apart. So what you saw in a city like, again, Philadelphia, uh, when they were calling for volunteers, nobody showed up. Uh, People literally were starving to death, not because there wasn't plenty of food, but because they couldn't find anybody with the courage to bring them food. And the same thing was happening in rural areas. You look at Red Cross reports from Appalachia, where, I mean, you could say, well, Philadelphia, it's a big city. People don't know their neighbors anyway, and things like that. But the same thing's happening in Appalachia, where family and community was everything, where you see Red Cross reports of people actually starving because even, you know, a woman's sister wouldn't go there and bring food. And I think that's directly related to the fact, I mean, obviously, you had reason to be afraid. But people were driven apart instead of pulled together because they were being lied to. So people knew about this, but they didn't know about it from the traditional outlets. It was just word of mouth that was spreading what they saw with their own eyeballs? Yeah, I mean, eyeballs. (laughs) Your next door neighbor drops dead. You know about it. Uh, You know, I'll give you another example. In Phoenix, the Phoenix newspaper was writing about it when it first hit Boston. Then it wrote less about it when it hit New Orleans, when it was actually in Phoenix, it initially disappeared from the newspaper. You know, later as it became impossible to ignore in Phoenix, they did write about it. But the initial response was, let's pretend this doesn't happen because it's depressing to morale. In one of the cities, one of the very few cities 
where they took a different approach was San Francisco. In San Francisco, the mayor, business leaders, trade union leaders, the medical community all came up with a joint statement and in huge type, full page in the newspaper, huge type, it says, wear a mask and save your life. Hmm. That is a very different message from this is ordinary influenza by another name. And San Francisco functioned much better than the vast majority of cities. It was hard hit by the disease, but there you, you have when teachers, when they closed schools, teachers volunteered for things like uh, ambulance drivers, which is very risky, as opposed to other places where people were starving because nobody had the courage to supply food. And again, I think that's directly related to the fact that San Francisco, the, the authorities told the truth, said this is a deadly serious uh, event that we're going through and let's rally together and work together. And they did. In, in the conclusion of your book, or you come to a conclusion about leadership in your book, The Great Influenza, you say, the final lesson of 1918 is that those in authority must retain the public's trust. The way to do that is to distort nothing, to put the best face on nothing, to try to manipulate no one. A leader must make whatever horror exists concrete. Only then will people be able to break it apart. So here's my struggle. That's a great quote. Who couldn't who who couldn't agree with that? Yes, yes, yes. I'm going I'm to say something to you. And since you're a former football coach, I used to play football, never made it to the college ranks. But, you know, there's an ethos for those of us who have football. We suck it up, say it like it is in a locker room. Don't worry about hurting somebody's feeling. I, I want you to tap into your old, your old school football coach and set me wrong on this or just help us out here. The problem with that, John, is I don't know who the heck to trust. That's the problem with that. I mean, I, I listen to some politicians on the right. And throughout the whole thing, they were they were ignoring there was a problem. And I listened to other politicians on the left, and they're treating this thing like it was the Spanish flu. It was nothing like the Spanish flu, at least not by the statistics and the death rate. And it's like it, it just seems like anybody's opinion was whatever their political persuasion was. And, and it's just really, really frustrating. So what should we be thinking about this as leaders when we're in this culture? We can't get a straight answer from anybody. Your thoughts? I wouldn't entirely agree with that. You know, the scientific community, like everybody else, scientists make mistakes. But the whole reason for the existence of science is to pursue the truth. So I think in a case like public health, you listen to the scientific community. Now, even in the scientific community, there was a tiny minority which disagreed. The overwhelming consensus, they were all saying the same thing. Those are the people whom I think should have been trusted and to a large extent were trusted. Uh, you know, we know Trump himself Back in February, told Bob Woodward, we probably all have heard his voice on tape telling Woodward, yeah, this is the deadly, deadly thing, and so forth and so on. Um, and then Trump allowed politics to interfere with saving lives, frankly, 
Uh, you know, a doctor could be wrong. A scientist could be wrong. But yeah. they don't have an agenda. Their agenda is to tell you the truth. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a really good word. Um, I yes, yes, I think you're right. I think I think the difficulty with the whole COVID stuff, though, is that we all know the politicians aren't aren't equal purveyors of truth, and they're all jaded. But none of us have ever been in a position where we have to trust the scientists, like in this situation, we haven't, at least not in my lifetime, maybe we'll do better next time. But I just find that people don't trust scientists. People don't trust anyone who disagrees with them. I had, I had, um, Dr. Francis Collins on the podcast, the director of the National Institute of Health. He mapped the freaking human genome. He mapped the human, Fauci reports to him I had him on the podcast, and he basically, as far as I was concerned, was an open-shut case on why you should get the vaccine. And yet, I can't tell you how many emails I get from, well, listen to this doctor. Well, listen to this guy. I'm going like, I already played the ace of spades. I played the ace of spades. You, you, you can't, I, I already have the highest rate, But like, no, look at this person. We're all like conditioned to think that somebody else is more qualified and we should listen to. Would that have been the way it was with uh, the great influenza or were they less jaded and they might've actually listened? Well, remember, as I was saying, the national public health leaders, and in fact, in most cities, the local public health leaders, because of the war and because they thought talking about influenza hurt morale and therefore hurt the war effort, they were not telling the truth. We're in a different situation today. And again, look at the unanimity. I mean, if you talk about people not trusting experts. Well, if you got cancer, who are you going to go see? Some guy on the Internet? You want that person to perform surgery or are you going to go to the best cancer hospital that you can find? It's the same thing when you're talking about a virus. You know, Francis Collins obviously say he ran the Human Genome Project. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so does Fauci. Uh, you know, back in the Bush administration, when I got involved uh, in the initial conceptualizing of a pandemic preparedness plan uh, in the, as I say, in the Bush administration, and it's funny, we were we were talking the Fauci was not a part of any of these meetings. Uh, we were conceptualizing the plan. And we all knew that the most important thing before you had any vaccines and before you had any drugs was going to be public health measures. And they don't do any good if people don't follow your advice. So the most important way to get people to follow your advice, of course, is your messaging. And, and back then, we all agreed that if in a pandemic occurred at that moment, and this is about 15 years ago, Tony Fauci would be the best spokesperson. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, and Tony was not, you know, I know Tony, not real well, but I know him. You know, he was not part of those meetings, but he just has a way about him of telling the truth, but doing it in a, in a, in a good way. Now, he, politic, for political reasons, he was undermined and he was not as effective because of that. And, you know, partly because, yes, like all of us, he made some mistakes initially. 
and we can talk about them if you want. I mean, I also was somebody who in the very beginning was against masks. And I can give you the reasons. I can also give you the reasons why I changed my mind and am now a fervent supportive of wearing masks, even today. You changed your opinion, you weak individual who would actually change your opinion. What is wrong with you? I thought you were a true American. True Americans are supposed to have a conviction, stick to it in spite of whatever evidence comes their way. Who are you? Yeah, exactly. My conviction is to the truth. (laughs) And as you say, when the evidence changes, then, you know, and your knowledge base changes. Yep. I hope you change your mind. We did a, I did a video. Of course, anybody who does anything on social media, everybody's dream is to, is to have something that's viral. Something just spreads and everyone sees it. And I finally had a viral thing. It was in February, I think we did it. We had a guy in a hazmat suit and I was walking down the street talking about the coronavirus and a guy in a hazmat suit comes up to me and he hands me a Corona beer and I drink the beer and I say, do not worry about this. It was just the latest thing that we're all afraid of. And I, I you know, I was mocking because it, it seems like Americans are afraid of everything, right? We're afraid of blenders and everything. And, um, and then it actually started going viral, like big, 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 big time. <clears throat> and then 48 hours later, actually probably 24 hours later, we pulled it and people were like, well, why did you do that? And I went, well, in that 24 hour span, new data came available that I hadn't seen before. And I didn't believe what I believed before. So kill me. You know, but that's very rare in our culture. We just want kind of stick to it no matter what. Hey, taking a quick break here to let you know that my latest book, Move, has been picked up by a traditional publisher and is getting a nationwide release on May 11th. We've added 22% new content to this devotional. So even if you own the original, there's new stuff in there. We've got a week's worth of special podcast content planned to celebrate the release. And I'm excited about this book, this content, because these are the things that guys wrestle with and need to hear from. So you can pre-order your copy on Amazon now, and you'll be ready for it on May 11th. So back to the show. Influenza, this is not a big deal in American history. It it should be a big deal in American history. It, it, was, it was 100 years ago. The average American knows X times, umpteen times more about the Declaration of Independence or even the War of 1812 than this utterly devastating thing that wiped out our population. Why is this as part of our American history we're so in the dark on? Well, until COVID-19, of course, you know, now— a lot of people are familiar with it. And of course, you have me on the podcast. Um, but until COVID, you know, I think you're right. It was largely forgotten. And it's a question I get asked a lot. I can I don't really have a good answer. I have a speculative answer in terms of why historians didn't write about it much and why it wasn't taught in school. And that's because until relatively recently, Historians always wrote about what people did to people, and they pretty much ignored what nature did to people. Uh, That has changed recently, environmental history and so forth and so on. Historians have started to look a little bit different perspective on things. But for most of the last century, that was not the case. 
uh, it's harder to explain why there haven't been a lot of novels written about it, you know, back in the 1920s. I do know that when I was working on the book, uh, whenever I ran across someone who was old enough to remember it, and if I told them I was working on it, I got an emotional reaction from that person. They certainly, it certainly uh, scarred those people who lived through it. So it's not forgotten by the people who survived it. Of course, there's hardly anybody alive old enough to have remembered it who's still around. Um, but in liter- literature and history, you, you, you're right. I, but again, I don't have a great explanation. There's certainly parallels between the two diseases, parallels in asking what the leaders said, what they should have said, parallels about how to s- limit the spread of the disease. But there's certainly in terms of scale and destruction, there's really no comparison between the two at all, correct? Well, in terms of deaths, none. Uh, in terms of economic damage, you, you could uh, make a pretty strong case that COVID's actually worse. And hmm. you don't have the intent. Well, the real reason is, and it's so brief in 1918, as I said earlier, in any particular community, it usually came and went, the really important wave, the second wave, in four to six weeks. And then it was gone. Whereas we've been living with this for a year, and it's not over yet. So the stresses, the psychological stresses, the economic stresses are much greater now than what they went through a century ago. There was a you know, very brief and intense recession following the pandemic, but even that you can't entirely separate from, from the war uh, because you have four million soldiers suddenly released from the army without jobs for them. So that contributed to uh, the economic downturn. During the pandemic, yes, places were closed down, even in war industries where workers were told they were as important as soldiers on the front lines of their patriotic duty, they had to show up at work. You're still seeing 40, 50, 60 percent absenteeism. And in uh, coal mines, which was uh, Metropolitan Life found that over 6 percent of all, not case fatality, 6 percent of the entire population of coal miners 25 to 45 years old, died in a period of a few weeks. So coal mines practically shut down and everything ran on coal in those days. That was your energy source. That that had economic impact. But again, the brevity of it, which also may be part of why it hasn't been written about more. Hmm. And again, we're, we're enduring this for more than a year now. So, well, looking at it that way, <laughs> instead of flattening the curve, should we have spiked the curve, get it over with? No. You know, this is a deadly virus. Make no mistake. This is nothing like 1918, but it is a deadly virus. And had we not intervened, number one, the virus 
you know, it still would move much more slowly than influenza. Everything about this virus is slower. The incubation period is much longer. You're sick longer. You shed virus longer. The serial transmission is much longer. By that, I mean one person gives it to another, to another, to another. All those things will stretch everything out. So the early, if anything, I think the early models, which said if we didn't do anything, we'd have 2 million dead. I actually think they were pretty optimistic based on the fact that we've done a lot and have saved an awful large number of lives. And we still have half a million dead. Uh, The other thing is uh, that I'm more than a little concerned about are these uh, variants. You know, and these are not the last variants that we're going to see. It's going, the virus is going to continue to change. So I am not really concerned about the variants that are out there right now. The vaccines uh, do seem pretty effective against them, even the Brazilian and South African uh, variants. But I do have some concern about variants that we have not yet seen. Um get vaccinated. Yep. I got vaccinated. Dr. Uh, Dr. Collins convinced me of that. Got vaccinated. It was no big deal. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. I don't enjoy. Well, I enjoyed them taking their, their needle and trying to stick it in my arm and my granite bending their needle. That was, that's always fun when that happens and a nurse understand why they can't vaccinate me. So that was kind of, that was kind of fun. Other than that, no, it was fine. It was, it was no big deal. It's so funny how some people, uh, criticize other people people for being afraid. So some people are criticizing folks for wearing double masks. Oh, you're just so afraid. You're so afraid. Yet the same people are refusing to get a vaccination. Well, why aren't you afraid? When you're afraid, what, you, you think your balls are going to fall off? No, they're not. You're going to be fine. Get the vaccine. You're, you're not. If you're afraid of a vaccine, guess what? You have a fear problem. You don't have a science problem. You have an actual fear problem. We all It's all a matter of picking our fears. I don't like hearing you talk about how things could get worse. I don't like it. I'm just going to put my ears, my finger in my ears and go, I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. I hate the thought that this thing could continue, but let's let's forget about the, the variants on the virus that I was, that I was reading some articles on today, just as you mentioned, let's forget about those variants. Let, let's talk about whenever it ends, if it ends here in a month or it ends in a year, what can we learn from the Spanish flu when it was, when it was done, didn't the roaring twenties come right after that? Wasn't there pent up demand economically and people wanted to get out and just have fun and yeehaw, get out there and, and, and might we see something like that in our economy and in America, or do you think that's apples to oranges? Both. It is apples to oranges, but I do expect to see, uh, you know, major economic boom. And I'll tell you why it's apples to oranges. Uh, Roaring 20s was not just in the United States. It was in Europe as well. You had 20 million people dead in Europe from the war. And all those people. Hold on. 20 million dead from the war. And how many dead from the influenza? uh, In Europe alone. You know, in the millions, but a lot less than that. For example, there was like 450,000 in Germany, about 200,000 in England. If you add it up, you got a couple of million. Practically everybody killed in the war was young. So you had this and and then you had the peace treaty, which was one of, you know, first the war itself, deadly, not only deadly, but the stupidest war 
with the worst generals on both sides possibly of any war ever, ever fought. There wasn't a reason in the world for that war. And there certainly wasn't a reason in the world for the slaughter. And the sense of disillusionment. Then you have a peace treaty where Woodrow Wilson, our president, was a worldwide regarded as a hero. He was, our slogan was make the world safe for democracy. A peace without victory it was supposed to be a fair peace. It was self-determination going to be all over the world. And he sold everything out, partly because he got influenza and it affected his thinking. But so there was this tremendous disillusionment over the peace treaty. Uh, John Maynard Keynes called Wilson the greatest fraud on earth. Mm. And you have, again, the virus, which has killed a lot of people, but not as many in Europe or the United States as the war. So there is this tremendous sense of if you're young, you survived and you have this sense of fatalism, also a little bit of survivor guilt, also an idea that none of this made any sense. It's the most stupid thing that could you could possibly have imagined. So there was this wildness to the Roaring Twenties, this fatalism, this sense that death is, is all around you, but you survived. You know, but everything about American society seemed to be coming apart right after the war. You know, they tried to assassinate, uh, you know, anarchists tried to assassinate the Attorney General of the United States and J.P. Morgan. There were race riots in 26 cities. You know, uh, African-American soldiers who came back from France were lynched when they were wearing their uniforms because they believed they had just fought to make the world safe for democracy. And they came home to something considerably less than that. Mm. Uh, there were general strikes, general strikes and a police strike in Boston that got Calvin Coolidge named vice president, a general strike in Seattle. Uh, all these things were happening in 1919. Warren Harding runs for president on a return to normalcy, normalcy. That's what people want. So it's a totally different psychological feeling than today where we're all pent up and can't wait to get out there. This is just about the economy. This, I mean, it is the sense of release, like you're getting out of jail almost uh, when you can go to a restaurant uh, or Again, I live in New Orleans in the French Quarter, and people are coming back to the French Quarter. It's great. You know, there was a hotel next to me. Uh, their driveway, they had plywood over this big, huge driveway. It was depressing as all get out when I walked by it every day, and they took it down two days ago. I was ex so excited to see the plywood come down. The hotel's not open yet, but the plywood came down. But it's not the sense of fatalism that you got in the 20s. So psychologically, I think it's going to be a lot different. But in terms of the economic boom, it's going to be much quicker uh, and much happier. That is encouraging. Do you hear that, everybody? It's going to be quicker and happier. So says the experts on the Spanish flu. Coach, this has been this is this has been great. I want to do one more thing with you if you're okay with it. I'd like to take you through the lightning round. The lightning round is where I give you a topic and you answer it like one or two sentences. 
Can you do it? Like, I need you to fire off the line and hit your man and don't drive your legs. Can you do that, coach? As you know, I give long answers, but I'll, I'll give it a <laughs> and, and they're brilliant answers. I, That's why I write books instead of hard. <laughs> if, it's, if it's longer, I won't ding it because I, I found this very fascinating. I don't care if anybody else likes this. I'm liking this, and it's all about me. So if I'm having a good time, that's all that matters. Here we go. I'm having a good time. Good. Here we go. One, your favorite era or person from history doesn't have to be Spanish flu related. Your favorite era or person from history? Probably Roger Williams. Roger Williams? Yeah. Who's Roger Williams? Who's Roger Williams? Yes, who's Roger Williams? He's a Puritan who founded Rhode Island and is, uh, he was a Puritan minister who, when he first came to Boston, he was offered the post running the church, and he didn't think the Puritans were pure enough for him, so he declined. But he's also the person, the first person to articulate separation of church and state in a modern way, and at the same time, really articulated individual freedom in a modern way for the first time. Uh, really an incredible figure and obviously not well enough known since you didn't know who I was talking about. <laughs> oh, ja, ja. <laughs> Coach, you're killing me. You're killing me because I even have Presbyterian roots and come from a Reformed theology background. So the fact that I knew who I were talking about who was, ref, who was a Puritan, uh, and, and you broke all the rules on the lightning round, but that was okay. That was worth every word you gave. Well, let me go, go further on the lightning round. All right, why not? Roger Williams was an apprentice to the Chief Justice of England, who actually ruled from the bench, the house of every Englishman is as his castle. And that sense of individual freedom, you know, ran through Williams's veins. Uh, and very important, I think. But uh, let's get to the next question. I'll see if I can answer faster. Fascinating. You can answer just as slow if it's going to be just as meaningful as an answer. That was good. You've also written extensive histories on the great Mississippi flood of 1927 and the separation of church and state, as we've learned uh, about Roger Miller. Did I get his name right? Roger Miller? Williams. Williams, I already forgot his name. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, uh, uh, any other projects on the horizon for you? Uh, two. One, I was working on a book on the coast of Louisiana. Louisiana has lost 2,000 square miles of land. That's more than the state of Delaware. And everything that's gone into that land loss, which starts 2,000 miles upriver with dams on the Missouri River is a major cause and right down into the Gulf with uh, oil and gas development. Uh, after Katrina, I was on the uh, levee board protecting New Orleans and pretty involved in that issue. But I put that aside because I'm also writing a book on COVID. Wow. How has your background as a football coach enabled you to do your current life? Well, <laughs> I don't know that there's a lot of connection, to tell you the truth. <laughs> oh, I think there is. Absolutely there is. From what I've just seen with you, uh, when you're a football coach, you just state it the way it is. You're an authority and everyone's got to get in line or not like it. That's just the way, it, whether you like it or not, you got to get in line. 
that's you're 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 the king and and I hear in your answers you're just authoritatively stating things the way you see it there's not a lot of caveating there's not a lot of this you're like yeah there, it's a very direct this is the way it is and I found this whole conversation incredibly refreshing and very reminiscent of every football coach I've ever had oh well that's interesting yeah <laughs> appreciate that uh, uh, this has been great I, I am I am curious this is this is just off the cuff here right now. I am, I am curious, like how we're going to view this. I, I feel like it's going to be five years until we can actually know what, what was real with COVID, what we should have done, how bad it was. I feel, at least I feel that way. It's five years. I don't think we're going to know. I don't think we knew last year. And I don't think we're going to go, uh, you know, a week or a month from now, because things are just changing. Uh, but if you were to look forward five years from now, when we look back on this whole COVID era, how do you think historians will communicate this or talk about this? What will we see? What, what, what will we believe about COVID that is definitively known five years from now? Well, I think it is going to be a demonstration, and I think it already is a demonstration, of how much difference leadership makes. You know, unfortunately, uh, the United States and Brazil and a couple of other countries are examples of how leadership can kill people. I don't know how else to put it. If you look around the world for the country that is most like the United States, if you think about it, I would say Australia would come to mind. You know, your initial response would be maybe Canada. But you think a little bit deeper, and it's probably Australia. You know, there certainly is individualistic as the United States. They even sort of a cowboy culture. Australia has 25 million, and they also have a conservative leadership politically. They have 25 million people. That's one thirteenth of the United States. They've had 909 deaths. They've had four deaths since October. So if you adjust for population, then that would be the equivalent in the United States of 13,000, less than 13, it would be about 12,000 deaths. The United States is approaching 550,000 deaths. Hmm. Same culture, same individualism, same virus, same tools to contain the virus. The difference was leadership. And you look at numbers from Russia or you look at numbers from, uh, you know, Mexico or, you know, maybe you can say, oh, those numbers are phony and they're understating this or overstating that. The numbers from Australia are absolutely accurate. They did it right. That's really insightful. I, I don't know. How much of that is bad leadership and how much of that is bad followership? You know, because Australia was originally populated because they were their frontiers because they were what they were shipped out. Uh, the, the initial population shipped out as a prison colony, basically. But they were pioneers. But like, we don't want you anymore. America was different in that all of our forefathers were rebelling against authority. 
all of our forefathers saying, uh, we don't like you, King. We don't like your thing. We're out of here. It's kind of like in our DNA as a country is a suspicion of authority, is, is a need to not listen to authority. Agree, disagree? Uh, you know, it is followership, but that also involves leadership is to get people to follow you. Uh, here we were confused, different messages. I can understand somebody not knowing whom to believe and then makes it that much easier to listen to what you want to hear. But again, that that's a function of the leadership. And, you know, it's unfortunate. You know, there are a lot of people dead who could have been alive. John, this has been fantastic. When we uh, get off the when we get off the phone here, I'm going to get your cell phone number if you give it to me. Because next time I'm in New Orleans, we're going to slam some beers together. I find this incredibly invigorating and enlightening. Incredibly, incredibly so. If someone wants to follow up with your work though and hear more about things you got going on, how can they do that? Go ahead and advertise you and your stuff. Well, I'm not much on social media. I've never tweeted in my life. I'm on Facebook, but I. <laughs> I've posted about 10 things in 20 years. Uh, I'm old school. I do have a website, johnmbarry.com. But of course, you know, I hope uh, bookstores carry my books and so forth. And go support your local bookstore. Amazon makes plenty of money anyway. Yeah, they do. Uh, So there you go, guys. This guy has been a blessing to us. He's given us a a lot of great insight. John, you you pushed me forward on my thinking. you did when I read your book those many years ago, and you have just in this podcast as well. So thank you, John Barry, the author of The Great Influenza, the author of The Mississippi Flood, the, the man who has got great truth for us. That's it today. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. It was fun. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.